I wanted to um, to thank everybody for coming, and uh, I want to thank at the outset our uh, sponsors for this evening's learning. Uh, learning is sponsored by Martin Schenker, Lili Nishma Sertzihersh, Rav Shalom Henry Krenik, Levracha, and learning is also sponsored by Francine Cinnamon, Lili Nishma Rav Aryeh Ben Yisrael Zechron Levracha. Francine told me was a Holocaust survivor as well. In the Nishamas have an Aliyah and Gan Eden, and may our learning be the Ili Nishmasam. Um, this is the this is the final of our um, this is the final of our shiurim together, and uh, tonight I mentioned in the beginning uh, when I quoted uh, Dr. Polen, Dr. Nechemia Polen, when he was talking about studying the Eish Kodesh for his doctoral dissertation, he said that it's very difficult to look at it uh, directly. Uh, sometimes when you look at something that's very bright, so to look at it directly, so it could it could scorch your eyes, it hurts your eyes. So Dr. Polen uses uh, the same metaphor but inverts and says when you look at something too dark, so you almost get sucked into the abyss, that the void is too great and that, uh, and that it's, uh, it's, it's person lacks the ability to be able to sustain staring at that for too long. However, however tonight, even though we've been sort of avoiding it um, up to this time, uh, tonight we're going to spend our time looking directly at, um, I guess, the culmination of the Piazetzner and all the Piazetzner's Torah and everything that we've been learning about the Piazetzner up to this point. And uh, we're going to look directly at that abyss. And, uh, and as I mentioned in the other share, obviously to do this constantly, to do this for a sustained period of time, to do this really every day is impossible. And uh, we have to go on with our lives however, however we, we do. But, uh, but it helps, it, it, it behooves us every once in a while to refocus and to remember, to remember, um, to remember, Zachar. Right, to remember what we're uh, what we're doing here, and what we're looking at. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best to uh, to hold it together. It's my promise to you because we have to learn, and I'm gonna do my best. I uh, I structured the shear in a way that I haven't structured before, and really the purpose of the purpose of this is to keep us uh, to keep me on the straight and narrow. I want to begin by quoting to you guys a gemara that's not on your sheets that I think is very instructive and can help bookend uh, what we're gonna be learning tonight. The gemara comes from Masechus Brachos. And the Gemara has uh, different drashas on Shema, uh, where it talks about Bechol Nafshecha. And I'm going to try and read it out, uh, out loud, and, um, and we'll walk through it together, but hopefully this will bookend the shir tonight. So the Gemara tells us the following thing. So he says, Rabbi Akiva, Omer, Rabbi Akiva says, when we say in Shema Bechol Nafshecha, it's the Gemara in Brachos on Samech Aleph on the base. Rabbi Akiva says, when it says in the Gemara Bechol Nafshecha, that you should serve Hashem with all your soul, even if God takes your soul from you, if your life is taken, so our rabbis taught. So the Roman government made a decree that the Jews should not engage in the study of Torah, which is our life. So a certain individual named Papus Ben Yehuda came and found Rabbi Akiva teaching Torah despite the decree. Rabbi Akiva, are you not afraid? For, the government has forbade this. Are you not afraid? Under the pain of death. Rabbi Akiva says, I'm going to tell you a mashal. There was a fox walking on the banks of the river. And he saw the fish pooling in the river. Why are you guys running away? Because of the nets that they bring on us. Fishermen come, so we, we come in schools together to avoid them. 
says, Do you guys want to come ashore? Maybe you guys come ashore and we'll dwell together like our ancestors and your ancestors dwelt together. I'm low, the dog and the fish said, you the fox, you the one that you say is the wisest amongst all the animals. You're not smart, you're not clever, you're a fool. Even if we're afraid in the water, which is our place where we live, so too we should be even more afraid were we to be taken ashore. So to us, Jews are the fish. We sit and we learn Torah. The Torah is our life and it's our way of life. It's what sustains us. So too, if we were to go ahead and desist from learning Torah and cancel out learning the Torah, so if we risk our lives when learning it, at least we're risking our lives when we're learning Torah. But to risk our lives and not be learning Torah, even more so, we've got nothing to rely upon. Amru, it wasn't so long until they, the authorities caught Rabbi Akiva and they imprisoned him. And Papas Ben Yehuda found himself in the adjacent cell. Papas said to Rabbi Akiva, Praiseworthy is Rabbi Akiva that he was imprisoned for doing the most important thing, for learning Torah. Papas ben Yehuda, for nothing. Tvarim betele, meaningless things. At the time that the executioners brought out Rabbi Akiva to death, Zman Kriyashmahaya. It was the time of Kriyashma. The worst Yisurin, the worst sufferings imaginable. They scraped his flesh, they flayed his flesh with combs of barzel, of iron. And Rabbi Akiva accepted upon himself the yoke of heaven at that moment. So his student said to him, Rabbeinu, our teacher, Ad Khan, up to here, My whole life I was bothered by this Pasuk. We say in Shema with all your soul, Even if Hashem takes your life, when am I going to have the ability to fulfill this drasha, to serve God even when my soul is being taken? And now that it's my opportunity to do so, I should not fulfill it. And Rabbi Akiva stretched out the word and Rabbi Akiva stretched it out until his soul left his body, departed at that very moment. And the Malachim came and said, Ashecha, Rabbi Akiva, that his soul left. And the Malachim asked God, and they said, Zu Torah v'zu And I think that this is generally read as a question, and the students are read as a question. Rabbeinu Adkan, Rabbi Akiva, up to here? And Rabbi Akiva said, Yes, absolutely up to here. And the Malachim said to Kadesh Baruch Hu, with great question on this situation, they said, Zu Torah v'zu Is this Torah? And this is its reward. I think that both questions can be read which means that both questions can be read not necessarily as a question but as a statement of fact and I think that when we go ahead and we read Ad Khan the students are asking Rabbi Akiva Judaism goes up to this point 
even when they're scraping and flaying your flesh with the worst kinds of Yisurin, does Judaism go up to this point? Rabbi Kiva's answer is, absolutely, it sure does. And when the Malachim came and asked the Kajbarchu Zutor Zuschara, maybe we could read it not as a question, but we could read it as the greatest reward. This is the reward of Torah. That even when a person is undergoing the worst kinds of Yisurin possible, worst kinds of suffering imaginable, a person is still able to transcend. A person is still able to go ahead and rise above all the earthly trappings that we find ourselves, their own body and flesh being flayed from our bodies. That Torah gives us the tools and the ability to transcend that. And Mesechus Brachos, and I think what we're going to do tonight is, I hope to come back to show how in modern times, in our own century, in our own times, the Piazetz and the Rebbe achieved just that, achieved exactly achieved exactly what the Piazetzner was trying to tell us, achieved exactly what Rabbi Akiva was trying to tell us. And the Piazetzner Rebbe embodied this very teaching of Rabbi Akiva. And I want to point out the Meseches Brachos and Tafhei also tells us, talks about different kinds of Yisurin. It talks about different kinds of suffering. Yisurin shall ava, sufferings of love, sufferings, Yisurin of kapara, ex, uh, sufferings that are meant to atone, expiation, Yisurin, and then the Gemara considers the possibility, are there Yisurin, are there sufferings that, are, that lie above this? Are there sufferings that can't be placed in any sort of category that our reason, that human seichel can understand? And the answer the Gemara seems to say is, yes, there are indeed types of sufferings that transcend human logic. And in a sense, these sufferings, and the Gemara says namely when we can't study Torah, when we can't daven Tashem, when we can't find the meaning in the sufferings, when we rise above any possible give. Uh, a bit, any possible uh, bestowal of meaning on it. So these sufferings are actually the most transcendent. These sufferings are sufferings of Echad. Because these sufferings are sufferings that are directly connected to God Almighty, they rise above all reason. So hopefully maybe to be maktim and to show what I mean, I want to go ahead and read from my Saba's biography. So I mentioned before, the Rebbe told us last week, the Rebbe said, I have one eighth if you write everything down, write your soul down on paper. And I mentioned that my Sabah Zechron Levracha, he wrote for our family, but uh, his students prevailed upon him towards the end of his life to allow them to publish the sort of truncated version. So that's the first packet that you guys have here, and we'll just read from the section. If you see, my Sabah quotes, and this is after his recounting of his own family's travails, our fa- my family's travails during the Shoah. And he quotes the Nevuah of Yermia. Prophesying what would happen to a backsliding Israel, prophesying the destruction of the Temple. My Sabbath says it's true, we do have biblical examples of people where the sufferings and the Yisurin do have purpose, that the Yisurin and the sufferings do have some sort of, uh, they fit into some category that we could say that they're meant to admonish us, or they're meant somehow to go ahead and to correct the backsliding Israel, or as punishment. My Sabbath says the following, referring to his own generation. And if you look where it says the bracket, what kind of, we're going to quote at length, what kind of backsliding did we do to deserve this kind of fate? We did not serve idols nor mistreat our fellow human beings. We are more observant and more learned in the ways of Torah than any other generation before us. Yet we were decimated to those proportions that Jeremiah predicted. Why? Where did we go wrong? By studying the Torah and Talmud day and night? By taking care of the basic needs, turning the page of the poor, the widow, and the orphan? What about all the innocent little children who never knew what life is all about? What about all the great Sadiqim and Roshi Yeshiva? All of them were backsliders too? What then is the path of the righteous? It just doesn't make any sense at all. I've always rejected the preaching of some Gedolei HaTorah. 
that the Holocaust was God's retribution for our sins. What absolute nonsense. How dare anyone besmirch the memory of our sainted martyrs who were exterminated for Kiddush Hashem by referring to them as sinful. Was I more righteous? Was I more righteous than my little brother? My father, my grandmother, of course not. The bitter truth is that the animal instinct is still viable within all of mankind. Sometimes we manage to restrain that jungle law of the survival of the fittest and act civilized for a while. But most of the time, we still act on that primitive instinct, kill and plunder the defenseless. The rest of the world eagerly subscribe to that brutal law by quietly acquiescing to the wholesale slaughter of innocent human beings without lifting a hand or even a voice to contain those wild and inhuman outrages, continuing on the bottom. It is only us, the Jewish people, whose laws are based on morality and on responsibility to a higher authority that have been instilled with the moral code of Torah to distinguish between that which is right and that which you could get away with as a very minor infraction of the general rule. At least this is true for those of us who accepted the teachings of the Torah as a way of life. Perhaps that moral code is the thorn in the sides of all those beasts that seek to eliminate us as a pesky thorn, we who constantly preach morality and justice to the nations of the world, perhaps we make them uncomfortable. I am still struggling with this question. Hester Panim, God's turning his face from us and abandoning us to our own fate, is just as unacceptable to me as the sinner's theory. They both have at their core the notion that our martyred loved ones deserved God's abandonment and his wrath. They certainly did not. Trying to find an answer to this dilemma has almost literally driven me out of my mind. Hundreds of hours of soul-searching have not given me any relief. I still struggle with nightmarish images I witnessed. I guess some things are just beyond our capacity to understand. Or perhaps there's nothing to understand. It just happened because people allowed it to happen. Period. In a sense, I think that my Saba is getting at is maybe the same idea of these Yisurin that defy any categorization, of Yisurin that defy any logic or any reason or any sense of us trying to compartmentalize it, that these Yisurin lie directly in the realm of transcendence. That the greatest possible thing can also be the worst possible thing. That in some point the extremes, the extremes of joy and rapture and transcendence meet the extremes of despair, of pain, of hopelessness, that they come full circle that they make a whole. And I think that what my Saba evinces here is a true Torah perspective, I'm not just saying it's because of my Saba, a true Torah perspective on the Holocaust, because I think that that's exactly where the Piazetzner gets to at the end. And now let's begin learning from the Piazetzner. So the way that I organize this, I want to talk about 10 key points in Eish Kodesh. Some of them we're going to talk about outside, and some of them we're going to substantiate with readings from the text itself. Once again, the point of the Shurim is not to offer an exhaustive point of view. There's so much that we're going to skip over tonight. There's so much that we're going to miss. The masterful drashot we talked about last week, the masterful way in which the Piazetz, the marshaled almost all of Torah wisdom and almost all of the literature of Chazal from the massive repository that was his great mind, even without those farim in front of us. And we turn now to our main source sheets. Yeah, so there was, there was a few questions. Hi, question. 
And Hakadosh Baruch Hu answers him, "Shto kachale b'machshav say gzeri miachri apargud." It's a different ref- reference to this. Yeah. But there's a question there. Right, over there it's phrased the question because, as I think we'll see, it's an excellent point. Over there it's not Rabbi Akiva talking. It's Moshe Rabbeinu talking. Rabbi Akiva is the one experiencing it. The Piazetzners, we're going to see that what makes the Piazetzners sui generis is that the Piazetzners writing about it while experiencing it. Not, not like some people writing about it after the fact with some ex post facto perspective. The Piazetzner writes about it as he experiences it, and that's a, it's an amazing point. Obviously, you know... We could spend all night, right? But, but there's, you, you point out what, what he's referencing is that the Gemara Menachos tells the story of Rabbi Akiva from the reference point of Moshe Rabbeinu asking HaKadosh Baruch Hu, B'Sha'a Moshe Marum. So Moshe Rabbeinu asked the question, Moshe is a Malach. Almost. Moshe says, you know, Zutor Zuschari says the same question. So there HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, stop. In the Gemara in Brachos, so it's actually, there is no answer. It's actually a proof text brought from Tilim. So I think it's an amazing chiddush in these two gemaras. You know, we, have ta- we could talk about all this stuff. The chiddush here is the difference between the perspective of the one that's experienced it. My sab is able to say things that are quite jarring, I guess, because he experienced it. And the one who experiences it after the fact. Right? Even Moshe Rabbeinu. Even, right? Well, right. Moshe Rabbeinu prefect. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu is transported to the time of Rabbi Akiva. Correct. Freddy, question. So, so I think that what, what so my Sabbath develops that a little bit more. I think that there is an approach to suffering that says that, um, you know, we talked about this in that Jirash, not that anybody remembers what I say, but um, that it is, it is a shifting of responsibility, right? The Piazetzna does this thing later on. I want to get too ahead of ourselves. Piazetzna does this thing later on that if you place that if you say that it lies beyond our reason, so it sort of goes ahead and says, now we could go ahead, maybe once it lies beyond the reason, we can try and go ahead now and say, okay, this is unfathomable, let's try and go ahead now to see it after that. So one of the approaches is to go ahead and say that we're in partnership with God to create this world, and that there are indeed times when, uh, when God has given the world to us, and we fail at our, at our stewardship of the world. We, we fail. And uh, the fact uh, that Piazetzner is going to talk about this as well, the fact that, uh, that nobody stopped this, the fact that nobody stepped in, the fact that uh, that, that too. The, so, so even if we go ahead and we can leave blame or whatever in the unfathomable depths of the, of the divine mind, that doesn't mean that we shift blame, any, any little bit of blame away from those that go ahead and perpetrated this on us. Chazal do a similar thing with Paro, right? They say that, of course, you know, the sheep of Mitzrayim was supposed to happen, but it didn't have to happen as bad as, and as freakishly as, as the Mitzrayim <laughs> took it, right? So that's the idea. Martin, you had a question also. Uh, just to, to what we're going to what he wrote in the Eish Kodesh, he wrote between 1939 and 1942. 1942. So that's what is in the Eish Kodesh. Yeah. None of the things from before. Just what no, no. We have the things from before we learned last week. Mm-hmm. So let's begin. Mm-hmm. So number one, while most of the Rebbe's extant writings were handwritten copies by students bearing the Rebbe's annotation, Divrei Torah Mishnot 5701, Tav Shin, Tav Shin Aleph, and Tav Shin Beis, which is what it's called in Yiddish, and also in Hebrew, Chidushe Torah Mishnos Torah insights from the years of wrath, those are written in the Rebbe's own hand. And as we, uh, we don't have time tonight, but I could show you Daniel Reiser in the second volume, he reproduced the entire manuscript in the Rebbe's own hand, including 
uh, an immense amount of, uh, of insertions and immense amount of cancellations. Parts of the text are, black, are blocked off. Parts of the text are rewritten. There's a mass amount of footnoting done by the Rebbe's own hand, some of which are preserved in the standard edition of Eish Kodesh. That's the first thing. Um, the, I, I, I skipped a line. The Rebbe's first line, and I want to say maybe the overarching purpose of all these shirim, is that underneath where it says, number four, it says, the Rebbe says in Drash Amparshas Vayishiv, Shagamatem Nechazaktem Al Yadi, that you too, and this is almost an autobiographical slip of the Rebbe, that this, all, all the purpose of this was to provide chizak, was to provide strength and to provide support and encouragement. And we see also the Rebbe says he struggles throughout the work with his, his, what he feels is his duty to talk and also his inability to talk. He speaks, he, he talks about Yosef talking to the brothers and he says the brothers ma'almim alumim that they were putting sheets together. So when they're being ma'almim alumim, so the Rebbe makes a play, a Hasidic play on words and he says ma'almim alumim comes to the word ilem, right? Ilem is... Um, you know, it's one of the strongest drushes, mute, right? Who's, who is like you, Hashem, in the mighty? So, so the Medjish Rabbah goes ahead and darshans it. Who's like you, Hashem, almost a, a, a theology of protest? Who is like you, Hashem, amongst the mute? You saw us suffering for so long in Mitzrayim, and yet you were silent. You were silent all these years. The Rebbe says he struggles. He says... I'll just read outside. It says, After the, the, the sufferings they had, and the Rebbe's hits came very early on in the initial bombings of Warsaw. After they said, I want to just be quiet and silent forever. He said, but when everybody else started to be silenced around me, I couldn't suffer silence anymore. And I strengthened myself to scream out more to Hashem. Number two. While there is halachic writing from within the context of the Shoah and a work of Jewish thought composed in Hungary before the arrival of the Germans, Eish Kodesh is unique in being the only substantial work of Torah written during. Right? We have Shutmi Mama Kim from Ephraim Oshu, who lived on the Lower East Side, who had a base magic there, I believe. And that's halachic questions about, for example, how does a Jew who had, who's had his teeth knocked out, how does he go ahead and eat matzah? And matzah, we say that matzah, we have to chew matzah. Right? That has to be, right? That has, we have to chew the mar. So what does a Jew like that do when their teeth are knocked out? Or what's the halacha? Are we allowed to silence a baby who might give away and betray a hiding spot? So that's halachic writing. It's freakish, but that's halachic writing. And there's also work of Jewish thought. For example, the famous work of Rav Yisachar Shlomo Taichtal called Eim Abanin Smeicha. Eim Abanin Smeicha is also work of Jewish thought. However, it was composed in Hungary before the arrival of the Nazis. Of course, my Sabazari, the Nazis arrived there uh, around the, around sh- uh, much later in the war, much later, uh, almost two years after the Nazis, uh, three years after the Nazis arrived in Poland. Ishkotish is written totally during, and it's really unique in that sense. Three. The main focus of the work can be summed up in, and this is the way that I would summarize it, in the religious implications and meaning of suffering. The goal of the drashot is to give strength, honor, and hope to those who heard them. The drashot were delivered on Shabbatot and Yamim Tovim in the ghetto to people that listened. The drashot were most likely delivered in Yiddish and then thereupon copied afterwards on Matzah Shabbos and Matzah Yom Tov by the Rebbe or with assistance of some other people. There's some scholarly debate as to who participated uh, due to certain changes in the, in the, in the handwriting. 
But the goal of the drashot is shagam atemnit chazak mayadi. Throughout it all, even if the Rebbe changes tones and even if the themes that the Rebbe addresses change, the point is to give strength to broken Jews. That's the goal of the drashot. Four. So uh, one more point about number three is Dr. Abramson points out in a very strong way, he says that perhaps since Eov, there's been no greater j- work of Jewish thought that has a sustained engagement with the problem of suffering, with theodicy. Why do the righteous suffer? And why is there evil in the world if God is good? Since Eov, there's no, there's no longer, sus- there's no more sustained engagement of it. Four, there is no direct reference to any political or historical events in the Drashot. No mention of Nazis or significant figures or events in the ghetto are made, although underlined there are many indirect references throughout. And the indirect references, for example, I'll just give you a quick tour. If you look at footnote 27, the Rebbe references in Parshas Toldos, Tavshin, the forced cutting of beards of Jews in the street. He references in Parshas Beshalach, the forced closure of Jewish businesses. He says, Baruch Hu, how can we serve you if we have no money? <coughs> he references reference to aid organizations. In Adrash and Vayikri, he talks about Saka, where he talks about the Malachim, the Kabbalim, Dein, Main, Dein, the Amrin, that when they receive, when one person receives from another, when I give something to another person, so that allows us to go ahead and say Kiddusha, as we repeat in Valetzion, Kiddusha de Sidra. We talk about when one person receives another, Rebbe talks about the value of eight organizations in Vayikra 5700. You might notice the trend that it's really only in the early parts that the Rebbe has the strength and the wherewithal to, re- to even make oblique reference to certain things that were happening around him. The Rebbe references in that same parsha, Vayikra, the public humiliation of Jews and the hunger, and he writes the following. Ha'im tam kfar malach, has an angel ever tasted? Tsaro shal Yisrael b'shashem hakim has an angel ever tasted the pain of a Jew when he's beaten? Has an angel ever experienced the embarrassment when we are embarrassed and mocked and humiliated? Or a time when the Jew has no food or children are hungry? You know, I had a thought that maybe I would put at the top of the page just to show, just to give some visual reference to what we're talking about. You know, uh, Dr. Abramson does in his book when he's showing the historical context. He has pictures of the ghetto. You don't need pictures, piles of bodies, all that stuff. We know that that's there. A single picture of a Jewish child. Single hungry Jewish child. A single hungry Jewish child. How could, how could you go on from that? Even that, if you're a sensitive person, how could you make? So it's not, I didn't put it here. I didn't put it here because how can you go on? Really, how can you give a shear? So we're sitting up at West Side of Manhattan. How can you give a shear? We have food, Baruch Hashem. We're relatively comfortable. So, so a single Jewish child, that should be enough. That should be the end of all Torah. Everybody knows these pictures. I'm sorry. Everybody knows these pictures. The little kids sitting on the sidewalk. So that was daily life in the ghetto. That's the daily experience. We can't ignore the fact that that's the context, the milieu that the Rebbe is writing. And he saw these children. He saw the elderly. He knew that the context of the ghetto was that in 1.2 square miles, there are over 400,000 Jews. 1.2 square, that's nine people to a room. The Rebbe knew. And yet he wrote, that's the Ilmut. He says, he says I wanted to just live a life of Ilmut. I've lost everything. Personally, 
He says, but what can I do when I see if this is happening to everybody else? I strengthen myself to scream Tashem. And really, if we read Eish Kodesh the proper way, we would scream every drasha. Every drasha would be tefillah. Every drasha would be a prayer, and we'd scream it at Hashem. The Rebbe references the murders of Jews already on the seventh day of Shvi Shal Pesach, 5700, Sukkot Tavshin Beis, and Parsha Sachar Tavshin Beis. The Rebbe mentions the prohibition of public prayer, Parshas Nitzavim, Tavshin. The Rebbe references typhus outbreaks in the ghetto, and Parshas Toldos, Tavshin Beis. The Rebbe does make indirect references, turning the page. I'm sorry. <coughs> Despite this, number five, the uniqueness of Eish Kodesh and really all of Jewish literature is that it is a theological study of suffering by one who is experiencing it in real time. And now we take a look at Shabbos Chazon, Shabbos Chazon Tavshin Beis, and what's really fascinating, I say fascinating, right? We're saying it from a remove a little bit, but what's really fascinating is that you would expect, with all the Rebbe's vacillation about speaking and not speaking, the difficulty of giving words to the ineffable, right? I just mentioned parenthetically, because we keep talking about Yisurin at a certain point, suffering at a certain point, becomes synonymous with God Almighty. It's the only thing big enough for it, right? So, so there's really only two things, I guess, that could be completely ineffable, that we can't speak out. One is the name of Hashem. The name of Hashem is ineffable. The name of God is, is too great to be uttered in this world, to be uttered in this place. So, we, so it's, 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 it's Nick, it's, right? We can't be Hogebosiosov. So we read it, we scan it with our eyes, and we say something else. We say the shame Adnus instead of the shame Yud Kevavke, because we can't, it's ineffable, it's above our speech. The only other thing that the Rebbe makes reference to that lies above our speech, lies be, uh, beyond the faculties of, of human expression, is suffering also. I want us to think about those two things, right? There becomes a point, and this is going to be a theme that we're going to return to, there becomes a point where suffering becomes so great that you hit this transcendent point that you realize that the suffering is now synonymous with God because there's nothing else. There's nothing else. And the Rebbe references this in some of his most terrifying drushes, the most terrifying moments. I know I'm already going off script a little bit. The most terrifying moments is the drusha for... Yom Beis, sorry, drusha for Shmini Atzeres and Tavshin Aleph. It's the most terrifying drusha. The Rebbe references... A, a chilling line. He says, "La'asid lava." The Gemara tells us in the future. It seems like an innocuous line. You know, Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai have machloks in all the time, and Beis Hillel are the ones that are more lenient and more and more and more kind. I guess you know they're they're more uh, they, they're more fitting for this world. The Gemara says. The Gemara says, by the way, Lasid Lavo, in the future, the Allah is going to be like Beis Shammai, but Beis Shammai are the harsh ones. Beis Shammai is the strict attribute of justice. What a terrifying thought. The Rebbe couches in it. He says, sometimes Hashem's chesed is so great. That us human beings, the only way we could perceive it is, 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 is by harshness. Sometimes that love of God is so immense, so great, that we, we lack in our human form the kalim, the, the utensils, the vessels to accept this. I know that this is abstract, but we're going to return back to this. The point is that the sufferings, the Rebbe gets to the point that suffering is inevitable, ineffable, but what's amazing is, is that the longest, most sustained, and most drawn out drushes of the Rebbe are the last drushes in Eish Kodesh. The drushes that appear in 1942 when the Rebbe stops writing. In 1942, with the mass deportation of 250,000 Jews, from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka is when the Rebbe stops. After that, the Rebbe is deported in 1943. He survives the initial deportation because he's sent to work in a shoe factory. I read most, you know, the most, you know, there were all many rabbis who had, who had some sort of connections, so they all found their way into this, uh, the Schultz shoe factory. They worked there. They had some protection there. So you hear that there's, so Shimon Uberbrand writes about the Rebbe speaking in Torah with the great Kashuk Lavarov. 
So the Kaddish Klav Rav was one of the, was one of the Mashkichim, she is Chachmei Leblin. So Shechter used to call a super genius, super genius, Kaddish Klav Rav Eretzvi. So Yuberbrand, we, we don't have time for all this, but you hear the conversations, he says we would watch as they were there, everything had been lost, the, the mass deportations had already been happened. The ghetto was basically emptied out. There were no more children in the ghetto, there were no more elderly, elderly people in the ghetto. Th- that was it, everything, the full magnitude of what was going on was known. And he said, the Rebbe and the Kashuk lover of, so they would sit, and as they were, you know, the Gemara says, the Relazra Sandler, he would, he would go ahead, the, great, the tanner of Lezra Sandler, so he would go ahead and he would be tofer nalayim, and as he went ahead and sewed shoes, he would be miached yichudim. As he sewed shoes, so he would make the greatest unifications of God's name that the greatest Kabbalists do in times of divine service. So the Rebbe was able to fulfill that. It's, it's, we're, talking, we're talking things on biblical scale, Tanaitic scale, right? Once again in our history, which the, the immensity of this should not be lost upon us. I hope not. So they said the Rebbe, Rav Shimon Yuberbrand would say the Rebbe and the Kashglover would start to work on the shoes and said they would get caught up in, in, in some Talmudic esoterica and he said he would watch, they would be transported to another realm. Utterly transcendent. Utterly above. Right? Zu Torah, Zu Schara. This is the Schara of Torah. Utter transcendence. No matter what. You could be in the Warsaw Ghetto after 240,000 Jews have been deported to Treblinka. And you can still talk Torah, you've tra- you transcended. Zu Torah, Zu Schara, Adkan, even here, even in the Schultz Shoe Factory, in the emptied out ghetto, that's Adkan, here too, you can learn Torah. <laughs> so I'm sorry, so back over here. So despite this, the uniqueness of Eish Kodesh in Jewish literature is that it is a theological study of suffering by one who's experiencing it in real time. <laughs> so this comes from Shabbos Chazon, Tavshin Beis. So one of the longest drushes. The drushes get longer as the Rebbe stops. I mentioned, just before we dive back into this, I know that I have like 10 threads open and I literally made these numbers so that I would stay on, on track. I'm sorry. So I'm sorry for a lot of things. But, uh, but the, Rebbe, the Rebbe writes... The Rebbe, the Rebbe does have... He stops writing in 1942... He stops writing in 1942. However, there are many emendations. And the Rebbe goes back to earlier drushos and crosses out many things and adds many uh, side notes, footnotes, and uh, emendations later on during, from the time of the mass deportations until his own deportation. But he stops writing drushos at a certain point. So even the Rebbe stops writing drushos. Do with that what you will. The Rebbe says, says, <laughs> says, when we learn from the words of our prophets and the words of our rabbis, from the pains of the Chorban. Right? We talk about a rock, for example, outside of Betar that had the heads of, 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 of thousands of people smashed on it, almost too freakish to imagine. We talk about in Tisha B'Av. <laughs> so when we read that and we read it well, so we cry. We think we can understand a little bit of it. Akshav roim sheli he says, we now know that there's absolutely no connection. There's absolutely no comparison between hearing and learning about it and connecting, even as we might be doing now, to connecting to these tzaros than from seeing them and even more so to experiencing them. We're not, not, not them and not even a part of them. So the Rebbe is aware, he's, he's conscious of his situation, he's conscious that he is living through something like this, he's fully aware of his situation. Furthermore, the Rebbe says, even if we could, even if all the seas were ink, 
right? And we wrote out all the tsaros, all the pains and travails and everything. So that still wouldn't go ahead and describe what they really were, what they really felt like in truth. Talking about and speaking about and knowledge of these pain and suffering is not comparable to seeing it. Even though I know about it, I don't want to see it. Right, that's a reference to Gemara and Sanhedrin, which talks about says that the times, the messianic times, will come. Right, the times of Mashiach will come with the men suffering. So one of the rabbis says, right, let Mashiach come, but let me not see the let me not see the time that Mashiach comes because it means it's going to bring with it suffering as well. So the Rebbe was 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 aware that he was experiencing this in real time and trying to take stock of the situation when he was writing the drushes. Number six. The Rebbe progressively developed the full awareness and consciousness that was going on around him. In addition to number five, the Rebbe constantly sought to contextualize, to understand, and to connect what was going on with him. Take a look at what he says in Parshas Ekev, Tav Shin Aleph, <laughs> six. Omihu ka'elu. Who is the person that cannot find pain when he sees the sufferings of Israel now, like these, Bekuf of Benefesh, bodily sufferings and spiritual sufferings. And who's the person that cannot just become depressed and broken by the fact that they see there's no more chayder, there's no more yeshiva, there's no places to learn, Torah scholars don't come together. It's not just now that the houses of Hashem have been destroyed, but the Knesios and Bate Tfila, Rakizman, Rakizman has their gam, the Haba Yeraeki Bachrim, Long de Tori Chasru. But they'll see even those that learn Torah are, are lost and gone. How many of them have died horrible, freakish deaths? And how many have starved to death? How many Torah scholars? Right, we want to serve God, but we have to go out and we have to ask for bread. We're starving. So where are we going to get people learning Torah from if they're not studying now? How many people haven't withstood the test? And have gone on Shabbos itself to go and to try and deal with their hunger, to try and, 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 and garner something, scrap of bread. So Rabbi says, he says, look, not only is this happening now, but he says, I'm worried for the future. He says, let's say we get out of this. So these people that went ahead and had to break Shabbos, who never wanted to break Shabbos, who was totally anathema, Torah scholars, but had to break Shabbos to go ahead and to find something to eat. So let's say this finishes right now. Are these people going to go back all of a sudden and Shabbos is going to be the same thing? They're going to go back and say, okay, now we can keep Shabbos because we don't have to search. The Rebbe says, you think they're just going to return? So the Rebbe is, is developing the consciousness not just of what's going on now, but what the aftermath might be. And, we might, and we'll see that this actually becomes more acute and more developed as we move on. I thought, I thought, yeah. you, I thought you said that his writing was um, to give uh, support, chizik, inspiration. Yeah. So this doesn't sound, this yeah, sounds like right. it's an yeah. epilogue almost. But were some of the drushes that he wrote were... So the Rebbe, is this, is this so, so, so you ask a good end? point and that's really going to be, this is, this is already, this is already 1941, okay? So, so the reality of the Gedrat start to descend, this is one snippet of a larger drusha. The Rebbe is saying this, the point is that the chizik they provides throughout, 
Right, and he does see, and we'll see what the final drush that we do tonight. Even at the darkest moment, the Rebbe still goes ahead and finds that transcendent point of Emuna, right? And we'll show the whole the point tonight is going to show the Rebbe's progression, right? So, so the chizuk that he gives, I would say, is almost worthless if there's not a sober understanding of what's going on and a sober accounting for what they're going through. That the chizuk again comes from the fact that he's experiencing, and he's fully aware. He's not hiding from what's going on. He's not ignoring what's going on. Right? He's not going ahead and trying to give reasons and saying it's, it's this or that. Right? In fact, when we take a look at the things that were that were excised, they're crossed out later on. The Rebbe went back to the earliest drushos where he does try and give some sort of a theodicy, and the Rebbe crosses out those. Anything mentioning uh, connection to sin, so the Rebbe does cross out many of those sections as well. This is this is the most sober assessment, which means that he gives his word his words so much more gravity, right? But there's no positive. I mean, not positive. Look, I understand you, yeah, but like. Where, where does it come in? So, so let's, let's continue. Let's continue. I promise you that, that, that we'll bring this out. You guys are asking good. Source number seven. Similarly, the drashot represent the glimpse into the ongoing development of the Rebbe's own thoughts and perceptions of what he was experiencing. People look in the Sefer, they say, what's the Rebbe Shita? Does the Rebbe have an approach to suffering? Is there one sort of theodicy, an approach to the problem of evil that the Rebbe adopts? So what I think, and maybe this is the beginning of an answer, I think that it's the Rebbe's progression along with the reader, that as we move along with the Rebbe's progression, so that as we see the Rebbe moving along and experiencing his reality differently, that is the Shita. The shita is, is that human beings do not have one pat answer to their suffering, that we develop in our responses to the We're suffering. We're going backwards here, 5702, 5701. Correct, five, correct. Seven. We're showing different things, okay. right? So, so, so what the Rebbe is showing us, what the Rebbe is showing us is that the progression along with him, the fact that he takes us along for this journey, that itself, I think, is the shita. That itself is the great chiddush here. It's not that there's one unified point of view, one unified answer that the Rebbe says. The Rebbe says, as I take you along my spiritual journeys, we're allowed to hold the hands of, of the great Piazetzner with his unshakable imuna as we move along with him. So that itself lends weight to how he goes ahead and gives chizuk, how he goes ahead and continues to, to support and to bring us back to Amun and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, despite what despite always being al-saf hayesh, despite always being at the at the edge. I, I wanted to live a life of silence, but I have to scream out to Hashem. I have to, right? That's why I started off with that one line, because we can't go through the whole Sefer, but the whole point of the book, the Gam Atemnit Chazak Temal Yadi, where the Rebbe is autobiographical. You are being strengthened through me. So the Rebbe writes, for example, in Parshas Kisava, early on, he says, When other people saw that my tsaros, that my own personal sufferings, are so great that it's almost impossible to be strengthened, they too will be strengthened with their sufferings as well. That weren't as dead as my sufferings because the Rebbe suffered early, we said. He almost lost his whole family right at the very outset in the bombings. So the Rebbe says he saw his role as somebody that people could look to and say, if the Rebbe has strength, we can have strength as well. Unfortunately though, the reality of the situation is that became diminished. Number eight, despite the Rebbe's attempts and intent at the outset to provide comfort and support to his listeners, you know, Heshi, you're right. I, I, 
I think maybe in, in, in struggling to show you guys maybe the, 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 the radicalness and the, and the, the realism and, the, and, the, and the, the sober assessment of everything that was going on, that we're not dealing with the regular work of Torah, we're dealing with the work that's full on, Eov at the gates covered in boils with his family gone and his friends giving him stupid advice and telling him what the reasons for everything was, that's the Rebbe as well. Right? So you might say, well, that's depressing, but the Rebbe is still there and he's still writing Tifrei Torah up to the very end to try and be mischazikas. And we will finish on that note, but maybe I should have, maybe I should have emphasized that more. Maybe should, so despite the Rebbe's attempts and intent at the outset to provide comfort and support to his listeners, he admits at a later stage that even he is no longer convinced of his own, of his own offerings of support. Let's take a look at two of the most chilling and shocking joshos that the Rebbe gives. This comes from two of the, most, uh, of the latest drashos from Parsha Zachor, Tavshin Beis, and, and Hanukkah, Tavshin Beis. First one, V'derech agav nirali gamin an Yisayon. The Rebbe says, I know from experience, She'av she'adam tzarech l'kavos b'kol rega she'yoshe'u Hashem, even though a person has to wait and, and, and hope for salvation any moment that God saves us. person shouldn't conduct themselves, say, oh, tomorrow we're going to be saved. Tomorrow the Mashiach is going to come. That's not, right? That would be an ordinary approach. So this is depressing, but this is an approach that sustains even in the worst possible suffering. Right? To say, oh, don't worry, we suffer now because Mashiach is going to eventually come. It's going to make it all worth it. That's nice, maybe in 2018 when we're very comfortable, right? We could talk about the final set. But when you're in, Warsaw, when you're in the Warsaw Ghetto, that's, that's, that, that's, that does, that's not, it's insufficient. So the Rebbe has to go ahead and he has to go a level deeper. He says, no, we don't deal with the sufferings now and say, oh, Mashiach will come and he's going to save us. The Mashiach can come tomorrow. That's not how we do it. He says, Because then if you wait for that time and the Yeshua doesn't come, Says that's enough to tear apart the heart. That's, a, that's the greatest, that's even worse kind of suffering. Oh, Mashiach will come and save us. I, I know Mashiach's going to come. Right? You ever hear rabbis that tell us, right, there were people in the Hitnat Kut that said, if we dive in hard enough, if we dive in hard enough, then, then we won't, Jews won't get expelled from their homes. Guess what? We dive in hard and Jews got expelled from their homes. So that's a minor suffering compared to the Holocaust, but that's still a great suffering nonetheless. If you dive in hard enough, then the three boys will be returned. Guess what? Didn't happen. So you could come afterwards with all kinds of answers. You come over and you could say, no, it's, there's other issues. That's fine. That's all well and good. But when you're experiencing it, when you're in the middle of it, so it calls for a different kind of Torah. Right? Remember I said abyss. Abyss. This is Torah deep, deep, deep in the void. It's a totally different, totally different thing than what we're used to. When people make themselves dependent on some sort of a promise, or some sort of natural thing, tomorrow will be saved. Tomorrow the Yeshua will come, and it doesn't come. So that person, there's no hope for them. That person breaks even more. We always have a job, a Jew's job is to always go ahead and surmount our desires, our basic instincts, and our evil inclination. Who is, who is strong? Who is, who is, uh, who is uh, who's strong? Somebody that's able to conquer his will. 
you're looking for, for chizuk, he says, the job right now is not to go ahead and be misgaber over the Yitzhar, to break the Shabbos, or to go ahead and eat a cheeseburger, or to look at something we're not supposed to look at, or say a Lashon Haru we're not supposed to say. The job right now is to go ahead and to be misgaber over the Yitzhar of Yeish. That we have a Yitzhar, we have an evil inclination to give up hope. We have an evil inclination to, to lose all trust in Hashem. Now our job, we have to go ahead. Our job is to go ahead and to surmount our own personal suffering. To transcend our own personal suffering. Our Yetzara tells us you're suffering and wallow in it. And, 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 and you know, go ahead, roll around in your suffering. Tell you that there's no hope. The Rebbe says that's the Yetzara now. We have to go ahead and go over it. We need to strengthen with our trust. It's so difficult. Our, our sufferings are greater than we can handle. God have mercy on us. In a time when Jews are being burnt alive to sanctify God's name. And they're killed just because they're Jews. The Rebbe says, get over yourself. Get over your corporeal trappings. Get over your sense of ego. Transcend that. Move to a point where you don't have Yeish. Move to a point where you're Nishazik and Amuna in the face of everything. It's the most radical concept that maybe Judaism has to offer. That finding our oneness in Hashem transcends everything. Transcends any possible suffering, any possible good as well. That it's to go ahead and to reach a point where they're meaningless to us. That the mean, to turn the, uh, the, they are meaningless. There's no meaning to it. We can't locate that meaning. But to find God within that meaninglessness. That's the, that's the most transcendent thing. Tefillah avotas Hashem. So he goes back and forth, right? He, he oscillates between these two poles of great chizuk and transcendent chizuk and, and the most sober recognition of, of, what, of what his suffering is. Tefillah avotas Hashem. He says, if you look at the end of the line, ubifrat shaktsaros nimshachos. We thought in the beginning that maybe this would be a year, maybe this would be a few months, and that would be it. The Jews have suffered through that before. We've had the Chimniki pogroms. Right? There's been, there's been, these things like this have happened. But now, it's lasting, we're talking years. And it's just getting worse. Somebody that was going ahead and giving strength to himself and to the rest of Israel. So that person becomes tired. Of, giving, of strengthening themselves. <laughs> they become tired of giving people comfort. Right? It becomes, it's too hard to do. Even if the person wants to go ahead and strengthen themselves, they want to say some words of comfort and some words of strength to their fellow Jews. Once again, that ilmut, there's no words to go ahead and to, and to accomplish that. During all these long years, the Rebbe has said every pass, have exhausted every possible word in the Torah repository to give strength to people. He's talking about himself here, Polen says. The words that I said, all that chizik, all the answers, all the theodicies, all the, all the answers that we've had in the past, so they become old. They're tired, they're stale. And it doesn't work on me or on anybody else. And then he says, Ube'emes. And this is the Rebbe, so this is, so, so I'm sorry I'm being so, so, we should just take strength from the Rebbe, because the Rebbe didn't give up hope, not once. 
Right? Which even, even with this kind, even with dancing at the edge, at the cliff of giving up, the Rebbe never gave up. So we could take, we could take chizik. So this is maybe the most terrifying uh, Torah that the Rebbe has. So, okay. So, trigger warning, right? So this is from Hanukkah. This is from Hanukkah. The Rebbe writes in Hanukkah, so 5702, and then the Rebbe comes back with a footnote, one of his final footnotes in 5703 in Tavshin Aleph, 1943. Ube Emes. Okay, I see at the bottom. What, what place do we have really to have tainus and questions on God? We're part of a long Jewish history of suffering and travails. And it's true, these Yisurim come every once in a couple hundred years. How can we try and understand the ways of Hashem? It's inscrutable. And that our Amuna should take a hit when we don't understand. How arrogant. We can't understand a single blade of grass that Hashem made and why it's here. And we can't understand the human soul. We can't understand an angelic being. Even more so, can we not understand what Hashem is thinking? So maybe, how can we understand? How can we understand what kind of... What kind of uh, What's going on behind the scenes here? How can we understand it, says the Rebbe? This, is, this too is a way of being mechazic people. So why should a Jewish person find their amunah destroyed by these sufferings? Turning the page, more than any suffering the Jewish person has ever had. Why is it that when we read the Gemara and we learn about Beitar, or we learn about Titus Arasha, we learn about what happened, we read Kinos, so we learn Divrei Chazal, how come our Muna is not destroyed then? How come our Muna doesn't fall apart then? So if you look at the Haggah, so he says, don't look at Haggah yet, People say, oh, what we're suffering now has never happened before. Those people are mistaken. In the times of the destruction of the temple and in Beitar, there were sufferings like this. Have mercy and say enough to our sufferings. May he save us immediately. Take a look at the footnote. You see where it sees the one? Haga. So the Rebbe added in 1943 in the following Hanukkah. Rebbe says, says, The Rebbe says, Only when I was talking about the sufferings that we had until 1942, that's what I'm referring to over here. But when, the, when our sufferings have become so much more grotesque and absurd, and freakish tortures and suffering and death, that our oppressors have innovated against us, against the Jewish people, from the end of 1942, according to my knowledge, in the words of our rabbis and in the history of Israel, there was never anything like this. May Hashem save us immediately. He's still asking for Hashem to save his sister. There's never been anything like this. So he knows. So I mentioned the progression, and I see we're running out of time. I'm so sorry. So 
despite the primary, primarily phenomenological nature, it's a big word that means the Rebbe is telling us these things as he experiences it. The Torah is being filtered through his own personal experience. It There is a three-stage progression that can be discerned in the Rebbe's thought throughout the work. And I think that maybe when we talked about the progression is the shita, that the phenomenology is the shita, that the Rebbe's development of thought is the shita, this is what we're referring to. And this comes from, uh, I, I had, I promise you I'd written this down, and then I read it in Reiser's book, and I, was, I said, Baruch Shekivanti. So the first one, Reiser gives it the name, the first stage, and although this, this is true, maybe Begadol, it's not, it's not exactly, there's exceptions to this rule, obviously. The first stage, the first year, 5700, 1940. So Emunah of 1939, I'm sorry, 1940. Emunah of Mashmaut. So the Rebbe tries to give uh, more traditional teachings of faith in the face of suffering and giving it meaning, trying to assign meaning to it and trying to, uh, trying to revert, not revert, but to go back to, to traditional rabbinic theodicies. Then in the second stage, Sarat Elokim, the, that our pain is really Hashem's pain as well. Statements like Imo Anochi Betzara, that Hashem shares in the sufferings of Israel, Shechinta Begalusa, that the Shechina Kivyachal, God's presence in the world, which is represented by the Jewish people, is Begalus, that this is another stage in the waxing and waning of God's presence in the world with biblical precedent and rabbinic precedent. So that's, that is, uh, that's, that's the focus of many scholarly works. Professor Tzvi Leshem uh, and Professor Yitzchak Hershkovitz talks about the Piazetzner's theology of divine weeping, that Hashem Kivyachol is weeping along with us, a humanization and uh, an anthropomorphization Kivyachol of God as suffering together with us, that it's somewhat radical that we go ahead and say that God is too, is suffering with us, but it shifts all blame off of us at this time, that there's hand-holding with God. And then there's the third stage. The third stage is Pshuta Kemashmo Hachnava Kabbalah. So it's not really Chizuk, but it's telling us what is. This is what's happening. Our, our job is to, is to hold the line as much as possible, to recognize and to assess what's going on and to appreciate the te- how terrible this is, but to put our heads down and to accept it. Kabbalah. And this is the last stage before complete transcendence or death. And for the Rebbe, that was death because he was taken away to Tronicki the next year. So I want to show an example of what I mean by this final stage and what the Rebbe does in this final stage. And, and if, if I could hold you guys for maybe three minutes, uh, we'll go one minute over time and I apologize. So this comes from another footnote that's added on, that's added on to the drush that the Rebbe wrote in Parshas Ekev, Tavshin Aleph, 5701-1941. So the Rebbe says, the Rebbe is becoming aware. At the, so so I'll, I'll preface with what Reiser says. He says, already by this stage, while becoming fully aware of the scale of destruction, the Rebbe reaches the terrifying discovery that it cannot be so that the true meaning of suffering is to awaken us to repentance because there is simply no one left to be woken up. That suffering must be something more transcendent. So here's the Haggah. These things above were written in 1941. Even though our suffering was great and tremendous and massive, as we've seen earlier, we could at least lament them. We could at least give words to them. We could care about those who were left. We had some sense of purpose. We could cry and hope for the future. 
How will we rebuild the yeshivas and the chadarim? Right? How can we go ahead and give musr and to strengthen those that were still with us, the Torah avoda, that they should serve God and they should reconnect to the Torah? This is not so at the end of 1942. That the that the Jewish communities, the Rebbe is aware that the Jewish communities of Poland and perhaps beyond have been completely eradicated and decimated. Even the little remnant that survived we are depressed and we are subjugated in, in, in the, the sufferings and the slavery of Egypt. They are constantly living in the fear of the shadow of death. It's not life. Primo Levi says, if this is man, Right, this is humanity. We can't even find the words to lament our suffering. There's nobody to give musr to. There's not a single person that we could go ahead now and we could we could raise up their soul to serve Hashem and to and to and to, to connect to Torah. To tell people, continue to daven, continue to be b'schazik in Shabbos and find meaning in that. Even somebody really wants to. Furthermore, how can we even cry about the future? On the rebuilding of that which has been destroyed. We have no spirit left and we have no heart. Rabbi says, I'm taking it all off of me now and I'm tossing it onto you, Hashem. and Hashem will rebuild it. With the full geula and with the revival of the dead, the resuscitation of the dead, says now, I'm almost taking my hands, and putting I'm tossing the soul in the Kaddish Baruch Hu. That's what's going to save us. Hashem, God Almighty, please save us, have mercy on us, and on a moment too soon. Professor Esther Farbstein, I guess we'll finish with this, right? Professor Esther Farbstein, who wrote a massive two-volume work called Ta'afus Ra'im, it's available in English and Hidden in Thunder, I encourage everybody to look, it's about spiritual responses and heroism during the Holocaust. So she used the term euphemizing evil in Ta'afus Ra'im. The fact that, for example, in certain communities, so we won't call evil things directly. Cancer, for example, is Yenemachla, right? And we don't, right, we don't talk about, we don't talk about evil things directly. Oswaish, when we refer to Jesus, Right, certain things that are, are bad or negative, we don't refer to directly. So she refers to that in talking about the Holocaust, Churban Europa, right? Even the word the Shoah. Certain words we go ahead and we we sort of use language to obscure and to obfuscate our direct encounter with it because it's too hard. So it's worth asking if the Rebbe is doing the same in these drushos, with that point that we mentioned that there's no direct reference. The answer, I think, is that the Rebbe's vagueness of language and lack of historical specificity is part of the overall shita, if we could speak of one. Perhaps this is the one central theme of Eish Kodesh. When we look at the Seif, when we look at what we're learning, it is a living document. The point is to go and to learn. The point of this is that this is Rebbe was aware when he was writing it that maybe the saving grace for the entire Sefer that it could be written, the Rebbe could continue even in 1942 and even beyond when he was going back over the work, is that the Sefer was meant for us, that the Sefer was meant for every Jewish suffering, whether or not that suffering was the suffering in a concentration camp or in the Warsaw Ghetto, whether or not that suffering is a personal suffering that nobody knows about that you're going through, or whether or not that suffering is the suffering happening in Eretz Yisrael or in Pittsburgh or anywhere else in the Jewish world, from now until Mashiach comes, that this book stands as another salvo in the Jewish 
people's words of chizik to each other, even in the most transcendent place. And I will return back to this idea. I'll just read to you to the last thing. I promise I'll finish this. The Rebbe says that one of his last trashos, Parshas Matos, Tavshin Beis, says, Hoshana Sovela Sovlecha. God Almighty, save us, we say on Sukkot, those who suffer your sufferings. Sheisrael Gam Sovelet Sivlo. That the Jewish people, when we suffer, it is God's suffering. We tie in our suffering to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Ikara Yisrun, the main thing of our suffering, the only way in which we could finally find meaning, even the most freakish circumstances, is to turn our sufferings and turn them into Hashem's sufferings. And with these Yisurim, we elevate ourselves, we become godly with our suffering. And with this, at least, we could find a little bit of strength. That's what I think Rabbi Akiva was teaching his students with Ad Khan, even up to here with the Masrechel Shobarzel. This is what the Piazetzin was teaching Ad Khan, even at the end of the deportations of 1942. And this is what it means, and certainly the Piazetzin's soul was to unify everything, the good, the bad, the evil, the righteous, the suffering, the joy, all this is subsumed in the recognition there's that divine transcendent oneness. May we never have to learn this lesson ourselves. May we only have the piazets to rely upon. May we May we hear only good news for us, the Jewish people, for the entire world. And may we be Zoha to meet the Piazetzner, to tell him how much his words were, Meschazikas, Biaskol Tzedek, Meher Amenu, Amen. Amen.